But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's good to see you all here today, especially if you're new or visiting. just want to say it's great to have you with us. Um, I've brought two books up with me here. I've brought one of my copies of the Bible, and then I've brought a book by Mary Berry. It's called Mary Berry Cooks the Perfect, Step by Step. And I suppose what I want to ask today is, why are these books useful? This is a very useful book, the Bible. We've just heard that in our reading. Paul describes the Bible as useful or profitable. He uses the Greek word ophelimos, useful or profitable. And he says this book is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training for righteousness. But guess what? Mary's book, Mary Berry, bless her, this is also a very useful book. This is a cookery book. It's got some great recipes in. So it's useful for teaching, correcting, and training in the kitchen, I suppose. But why do we as Christians base our lives on this book and not Mary Berry? Why is this useful to us, but not a delightful but aging celebrity chef? And I suppose that question drives this sermon today as we continue our series, An Attentive, like, an Attentive Life. Why does the Bible matter for us? Why does the Bible matter for your life? Why should we be attentive to that and not other things? Last week we considered, we considered God's word, God's heart for us, God's heart for our fruitfulness and for our faithfulness. I spoke about money, um, as Carrie said. If you haven't listened to that, please do listen back online. But this week we suppose we're considering why be attentive to the Bible? Why listen to what it has to say? Why study it? Why is it important? Why does it matter? And so the question that drives this is, why the Bible matters for your life? And for many of us, this will be something that we've heard many times before, but why don't we pray together that God would speak to us and that he'd shape us today. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord, I thank you that you love us and you're so good to us that we've got a reason to praise you, whatever the season. And we pray now, Lord, that you would humbly, the Lord, that you'd speak to us. We need you, Lord. We need your wisdom. We need your correction, your training. We need your voice. So please, Lord, come and use me and have your way. Amen. Amen. So why does the Bible matter? Well, firstly, the Bible matters because of its message. The Bible matters because of its message. One of the reasons the Bible is so important is because of what it says. No other book communicates this, and if the Bible didn't tell us it, we wouldn't know it. What's the message? Let's look again at verses 14 and 15 of our passage. Just so you know, we're in 2 Timothy 3 and just verses 14 to 17. So 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15 tell us, but as for you, that's Paul speaking to Timothy, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The Bible contains the message of salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Do you see that last sentence there? You've come to know this, he says. You've come to know the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise. But it's wise in the message that we all need to hear. 
the message that God so loved the world that he sent his only son to give his life for us, to die in our place, so that anyone who believes in him, who trusts in him, will not perish, but have eternal life. We all need to know that message. That's called the gospel. That is the good news of God. And we don't just need information, do we? We don't need life hacks. We don't need God's top 10 tips for our lives. We don't just need information. We need revelation. We need a message from God. This is who we are in him. This is who I am to you. Let me illustrate this with a picture of an elephant and some blind men. Somebody once pointed out that maybe all religions are like blind men and God is like an elephant. Go with me, okay? And the idea that someone wise once said is that all world religions, all faiths, are just grasping one bit of the elephant. Can you see this? So one's got the leg, one's got the tail, one's got the nose. And the idea from this is, well, maybe just all religions, all faiths are capturing, they, you know, they can experience one part of the truth, but no one person can see the whole thing. And there's some helpful things to this about humility, but from a Christian point of view, we believe that the elephant has spoken, if you like. God's shown up. God's spoken and said, this is what I'm like. You don't have to be blind anymore. You can see. So it's not just that we all grasp one bit of the truth, but there's something that we all can't comprehend. If you like, God's spoken, and he's spoken in the Bible. He's given us his message. Now let me just say this. I like this image because it's helpful for Christians, even though we know God has spoken to us, to have a bit of humility, to know that there isn't every, you know, we don't know everything about God, but we can know something of him. Somebody put it like this. We may not be able to know God exhaustively, but we can know him accurately. We might not be able to know God exhaustively and we might not know everything about God, but we can know about him accurately. We can know what he said. And this message that the Bible carries is so powerful. It was powerful for Timothy and his family. Earlier in 2 Timothy, we learned that Timothy's grandmother Lois was a believer and she'd passed down the gospel to her daughter, Eunice, and then that message was passed to Timothy. And Timothy had believed. That's what Paul's pointed out. You've, you've known the gospel as it's gone through your family. God's good news has transformed that whole family just as it has the power to do. The message we find here is the power of God for salvation. It is good news. And that's all found in the Bible. So why does the Bible matter? Well, it matters because of its message. But also the Bible matters because of its uses. Coaching's a big thing right now. If you're going to improve in any area of your life, you know, sports, business, finance, just your life, you need coaching. I've just been offered some leadership development coaching, and let me tell you, boy, do I need it. Um, but I've got very high hopes of this, probably too high. I'm hoping not only am I going to become a better leader, but my golf swing is going to improve as well. So, you know, we'll see how it goes. Come back to you on that. I'm reminded of coaching when I read this verse in verse 16. Look at verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So why does the Bible matter? Not just because of its message, but because of how it can be used. And Paul says the Bible is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Let's just go through those four things together, shall we? Firstly, the Bible is useful for teaching. To know God, we've got to know certain things about him. And the Bible teaches us 
about God. And that's probably about the most basic thing a preacher could ever say. The Bible tells us about God. And you're thinking, Tim, you've had years of theological education. Is that all you've got? Yeah, I acknowledge that. But let's just remember, for those of us who haven't been in church for a while or at all, we don't know about God, do we? Particularly as well as our society moves away from a Christian education, we don't know about God. People need to learn. It's always been interesting doing the Alpha course with people over many years. Just people's questions, which sometimes, you know, you wonder how they've come to know that. You know, why are you asking that question? Well, it's just because they need to know about God. And the Bible teaches us about him. It teaches us for righteousness. So why don't we be a church that teaches one another? Why don't we be a, teach, a church that helps one another? And let's use the Bible to do it, because it teaches us about God. Secondly, let's look again at verse 16. Paul says the Bible is useful for rebuking. Now this sounds like an overly negative word, but I don't know if it's meant that way. It's just meaning, like any good parent or any good teacher, the Bible tells us where we might be wrong or where our belief about God might be wrong. So the Bible's useful for teaching, it's useful for rebuking, and then Paul says it's useful for correcting. It's useful for correcting. I wonder if you've ever seen um, one of those uh, sort of, what do you call them in plants? Things that are used to straighten plants out. A cane, thank you very much. This is a group exercise, this sermon. A cane used to straighten out a plant. I've got one at home. The plant, I'm going to be honest, is looking a bit sad because I haven't watered it enough. But it does have a cane in it to keep it straight because the plant needs that. And so it is with us. Sometimes we all need straightening out, if you like, in God. We need correcting in righteousness. And then also... Paul says the Bible is useful for training in righteousness. The Bible trains us in the right way to live. You know, if you want to grow in the right way to live for God, if you want to grow in your holiness, if you want to grow in your character, you need the Bible. We need the Word of God, don't we? Let's just look at the, um, the back of Mary Berry's book, excellent book that it is. This is what it says on the back of the book. It says, Mary Berry's recipes are always delicious and they always work. And I can confirm that. I've botched a few of them and they're pretty good. Mary's Berry's, Mary Berry's recipes are always delicious and they always work, says whoever wrote this. Well, guess what? God's word works. His wisdom works. It might not be always delicious to us because we might not always agree with it. We might find it hard. But guess what? This book works. It's useful. It's profitable for training, for correcting, for rebuking, for teaching. We need the word of God. We need what it says. So the Bible is useful, why? Because of its message. The Bible is useful because of what, how it can be used, because of its uses. And also, the Bible is useful because of its origin, as in where it came from. Let's look again at verse 16. We've just considered the second half of verse 16, but now look at this. Paul writes that all scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, correcting, reading and training in righteousness. All scripture, writes Paul, is God-breathed. I'm getting a lot of mileage out of Mary Berry's book, but go with me again, okay? Why is this not the basis of my life? Why is this not the basis of what I do and what I'm about and my identity and how I should live and how I should treat other people? Well, it's because of who wrote it. See, Mary Berry and her team of excellent publishers 
maybe a ghostwriter. I mean, I don't know if Mary Berry's got the time to do a steak and Guinness pie recipe. Mary Berry and her publishers wrote this, but Paul wrote that God helped write this book. He says it is God breathed. And that word God breathed is a literal translation of two Greek words, theos, which is God, and pneuma, which can be translated breath or spirit. And actually the Holy Spirit consistently throughout scripture is associated with breath. So when he says God breathed, Paul is saying this book, the Bible, God's word has been breathed out by the Holy Spirit. Another way of translating this God breathed word is to say it is inspired So we can say that the Bible is the inspired word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, breathed out by the Spirit. Now there is much more that we could say on this. And there's lots of things that I'm not addressing here. How do the Old and New Testament relate to one another? And in particular, what does it mean for the Bible to have human authors and also be God-breathed? I think that's a crucial question. Because here we're reading a letter, aren't we, to Timothy. Paul writing to a young man called Timothy, which is an excellent name. Paul's writing to Timothy, and yet he says, Scripture is God-breathed. Well, a man called Andrew Wilson gives a great analogy about this. He wrote a book called Unbreakable, what the Son of God said about the, what the Son of God said about the Word of God. And if you want a little book on understanding the Bible, I'd encourage you to read it. And he gives this illustration. He says, consider a jazz musician who can play all sorts of different instruments. Nobody listening to Louis Armstrong would ask whether the music was being made by Louis or his trumpet. Everybody knows that the breath and the tune come from Louis, but the instrument through which the breath passes in order to become audible is the trumpet. The Bible writers, if you like, are the instruments of revelation. A trumpet here, an oboe here, a saxophone here, and they all make different sounds. But the musician, the skilled artist who fills them all with his breath, and ensures the tune is played correctly is the Holy Spirit. And he says that's kind of how inspiration works. So what kind of book is the Bible? It's both 100% human and 100% God. God's spirit being expressed through different people with their different personalities, different, different gifts, different lives. So it's totally human, but also it's totally divine in its authorship. And I think the best analogy for this is Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully human. So this means that the Bible, when we say it's God-breathed, in it we don't just find some words that God has written. Rather, this is the word of God to us. And in particular, this means that if this book is God's book, then it carries a lot more weight than this book. Here we go again. Thank you, Mary Berry. You're so kind to me. This is a lot heavier, this book, okay? This book weighs a lot more than my little book, the Bible. In fact, you can get pocket Bibles, can't you? Or you can get the Bible on your phone. But spiritually speaking, for our lives, this book carries so much more weight, doesn't it? In fact, it has a lot more authority over us. This book matters for our lives. Why? because it's been God-breathed, because it's been inspired by the Holy Spirit, because God has been involved in its authorship. And that means that our posture when we come to the Bible is really, really important. If this book is God-breathed, then it means we approach it in a certain way. And by that I mean when we come to God's word, we don't sit over it in judgment of it. Rather, 
we sit under it and let it judge us. Let me say that again. When it comes to the Bible, because it's God-breathed, because of its origin, when we come to it, we don't sit over it, judging it. Rather, we sit under it and let it judge us. So we don't come to it assuming that we know better than God when it comes to anything that might be about our lives. You know, last week I spoke about our money, you know, how to raise a family, whatever it might be. We let God's word speak to us and judge us. And let me apply that principle. There is no area where the nature of the Bible is more contested and it's more controversial than in the area of marriage and human sexuality. As in what this book, the Bible, says about sex and marriage is totally at right angles to our culture. As in it's totally at odds. The Bible consistently teaches a message that marriage is between one man and one woman and that sex is the only context, sorry, marriage is the only context for sex. And this gets really controversial and pointed when it comes to same-sex attraction. And the Bible points out that there is no space in God's will for same-sex sexual activity. And this can be seen from the scope of Scripture, but also in individual verses like Genesis 19, those found in Leviticus 18 and 20, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1. And I acknowledge that this sermon has just taken you know, right angles into something quite interesting. Some of you just woke up at the word sex. But this is worth talking about. We're saying that the Bible is God-breathed, that God's spoken about it, that this carries more weight than anything else. But where does that rubber, where does the rubber really hit the road at the moment? Where is that most challenged? Well, I suggest that it's in the area of marriage and sex. And this is where we need to apply the word of verse 16. Just look at verse 16 again. What does Paul say? All scripture is God-breathed. All of it. It's all been breathed out by God. If you want to be attentive to God, if you want to live a life for him, you want to walk with him, you need his word. But not just the bits that are easy, not just the bits that you instinctively agree with, not just the bits that go along with our culture or society or city or friends at the moment. All of God's word is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training. All of God's word is inspired by the Spirit and therefore is authoritative over us. For example, as one example, in what the Bible teaches about marriage and about sex. Now, I acknowledge that it'd be worth going through those individual passages that I mentioned earlier. I think we probably should at some point as a church just consider again, what does God's word teach about marriage? You know, what does it teach about sex? And go through it in full. And I'm sorry that I'm not doing that today. But I'm bringing it up because I think this is where it really matters. This is where we'll get really challenged. And also because of the situation in the Church of England at the moment. You might have seen this in the news recently, but the Church of England has been particularly focused on same-sex couples at the moment. Uh, and in, in something called the General Synod, which is like the Parliament of the Church of England, recently the Church of England has introduced some prayers to be used publicly by same-sex couples in relationships. And it's worth acknowledging that, and it's worth asking, how do we respond? It's worth not pretending that it hasn't happened, but acknowledging the wider picture as a Church of England church in the Church of England. And I wanna say a couple things. And both are from the principle of we sit under the Bible. 
So because we sit under the authority of scripture, everybody is welcome here at this church. There is nobody who is excluded here at Central Church. Everybody is welcome. Because we sit under the Bible, we want to obey God's command when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. We want to express the love of God who loves everybody totally, without exception, without favoritism. So whatever our sexual orientation, whatever our theological views, you're welcome here. And I would long that this church would be a place where gay people can feel pastored, cared, loved. And I'd be sad for times when gay people have felt like they're a problem to be solved in the church and not people to be loved in the church. So we want to be about, because we're under the Bible, a radical Christian inclusion. You're welcome here. You're loved. But also, because we want to sit under the word of God, for myself and for the leadership of this church, we're consistent in understanding that the clear message of the Bible is that marriage is between one man and one woman, and that marriage is the only context for sexual intimacy. Sex outside of marriage is not God's intention for us. In fact, it's so serious that the Bible calls it sin. So as well as a radical Christian inclusion, we want to be about a radical Christian holiness. And again, because we sit under the Bible, Jesus is our model here. Do you remember Jesus when he met a woman who'd been caught in adultery? Some men brought a woman to Jesus and they said, she's a sinner. Look, she's been caught having sex outside of marriage. And how did Jesus respond to that woman? Well, Jesus crucially said, I don't condemn you. You know, he pointed to all the people, other people. He said, let those of you without sin, you cast the first stone. But Jesus also said, I don't condemn you. He also said to her, go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus called what she was doing sin. And yet he held together compassion for her and conviction. And we need to do the same thing, just as Jesus did. As I said, back in December, in this meeting of the General Synod, by the smallest of margins, there was a vote to introduce the option of churches being able to use prayers, blessing people's same-sex relationships in regular church services like this. And now the situation there is ever-changing. Even this week, there are developments happening that are much bigger than just our little church here. They're much bigger than the city of Bristol and so on. But what does that mean for us as a local church? Well, in many ways, not much. We want to keep being focused on Jesus, don't we? We're going to continue to be focused on encountering him, redeeming life, and loving Bristol. We want to continue to be a church that seeks to have this radical Christian inclusion and a radical Christian holiness. And you might be here today thinking, how can I be part of a Church of England church if the Church of England seems to shift from what the Bible so clearly teaches? And if you're thinking that, I just want to assure you that as a local church, we're firmly sitting on the Bible, and for that matter, we're sticking with the teaching of the church down the ages and across the majority of the globe, and we won't be using those prayers of blessing here. I won't be using them as the vicar, and I've got the support of the PCC in that matter. Now, as I brought this up today, you might be asking from another position, you might be thinking, how can I be here if I disagree with this, or I hold a different theological opinion, or I'm working it out? You know, am I welcome here? Is everyone really welcome here? And again, I just want to emphasize so, so clearly, 
Whatever your belief on this, you are welcome here. There is space for you, whatever your theological view. And if you'd like to talk to me more about this or any of the leadership of the church, please, please do. What I should probably do in bringing this up is, you know, let's talk about it for an hour. Let's really go through it. Let's really spell it out. And I know we don't have time for that today. So if there's things you'd like to read or listen to to understand more, please do just ask. I'd love to point you towards them. And if you like, this issue, sex and marriage, is not something that I would want us to be focused on more than is necessary. I want us to be focused on Jesus. I want us to be focused on worshipping him. I want us to be focused on sharing him with the world and city around us. I want us to be focused on letting God's word, the Bible, shape all of our lives. And I acknowledge that there is a danger in doing what I've just done, in saying the Bible is the authoritative word of God, here's where the rubber really hits the road. And the danger is that we end up just singling out some people unfairly. You see, if this really is the word of God, and we believe it is, then the Bible, the word of God, is gonna confront and challenge all of us. There's no one here who doesn't need its message. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no one here that's holier than anyone else, whatever your sexual orientation. All of us need training, rebuking, correcting for righteousness. We all need it. Let me just give an example from my own life. Last week I spoke about money and how we've got this 6,000 pound gap for next year. Please do give if you can. And then I've thought about it this week and felt, wow, I don't like what I've just said for myself. I don't particularly like giving. That's become so obvious to me this week as I've thought about it. And it's probably because of something sinful deep down where I'm like, it's mine, you know, the money I have is mine, I'm gonna hold on to it, even though everything we get is a gift from God and so on. I don't know what the example would be like in your life. If this is the word of God, then it's gonna speak to and even challenge all of us. And I've just been praying this week, Lord, Lord, sort out my heart. Sort out my heart where you're speaking to me. I don't wanna be there to be anything in the way. Because God's got great purposes for us through his word, the Bible. Let's look at verse 16 and 17 again, and in particular, verse 17. Paul writes that all scriptures God breathed, it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible matters because of its message, as in what it says. The Bible matters because of its uses. The Bible matters most crucially because of its origin. And the Bible matters because of the result. What happens when your life is shaped by the word? Well, Paul writes that the servant of God is gonna be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The result of letting the Bible shape us, of sitting under its authority, of letting that word, letting those words be authority for our lives is verse 17. God wants to equip you to follow him. God wants to give you everything you need to live a life for him. He hasn't left us on our own. He hasn't left us in the dark working it all out. And he wants to be fully equipped. Another way of translating this under the old, in another translation is to say that the servant of God may be complete. Complete. And completeness is a, a wonderful image of what God's gonna do when we arrive with him in heaven. We're gonna be complete in him. But in the meantime, God is doing a completion work in us and he's doing it through the word. 
you know, what, I, what we consider for the last two weeks, we've considered the theme of fruitfulness. Do you remember what Jesus said in John 15? That it's God's will for us to be fruitful in him. He said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I remain in you, you're gonna bear much fruit. That's what God wants for us, fruitfulness. A life that increasingly reflects the goodness, the will, the holiness of God. Now, Jesus said something interesting. I'm the vine, you're the branches, but my father's the gardener. And he prunes every branch in me that bears fruit so it'll be even more fruitful. And how does God do that kind of pruning work? Well, go with me because I'm sort of mixing the metaphor here. He does it by the Bible, which is the sword of the spirit. So how does God shape you, prune you, move you to be more like him so that you'll bear fruit, so that you're gonna be thoroughly equipped for every good work? He does it through the word. And I want to call all of us today to just a fresh commitment to the word of God, to love it, to study it, to seek God out in it, to seek out the voice of the Holy Spirit as he speaks to us through the inspired words of God. And beyond that, I want to call us all to just a fresh commitment to the one to whom scripture points ultimately. The Bible is God's story and it tells us of his son, Jesus Christ. Every page, if you like, whispers his name. It all points us towards him. You know who the one was that was thoroughly equipped for every good work? The one who was perfect? It was Jesus Christ. He was completing God, and yet he gave his life up for you so that even in our lack of completeness, we could be completing the Lord. And he's not just our example for holiness, but he's also the way we can access that holiness as he gave his life for us. And really what this means is we need to come to God without conditions. We need to come to God and say, Lord, I'm gonna trust you, I'm gonna obey you without any other conditions in the way. As in, Lord, I'm gonna agree with what you said if it seems to agree with all our culture says. Or in the case of me with money, Lord, I'm gonna obey what your words told me to do with my money when I really feel like it. I don't know what it is for you. We need to accept God without conditions. This is how Tim Keller put it, a pastor in New York. If Christ is really God, then all the conditions are gone. To know Jesus Christ is to say, Lord, anywhere your will touches my life, anywhere your word speaks, I'll say, Lord, I will obey. There are no conditions anymore. He said, if he's really God, he can't just be a supplement. We have to come to him and say, okay, Lord, I'm willing to let you start a complete reordering of my life. And God promises that as he reorders our lives, that we're gonna bear fruit for him, that he's gonna shape us, that he's gonna make us more holy. In fact, he's gonna give us everything we need. He's gonna complete us for every good work he's called us to do. So why don't we pray together before we worship? Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we just echo the prayer of, of Simon Peter. To whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Lord, there's nowhere else that we could turn to. There's nowhere else we could go. You alone have the words that we need. And we just thank you for the gift of the scriptures that point us to the gift of your son. And we pray, Lord, you just set in us a new hunger Thank you that you say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they're gonna be filled. 
So we pray that we'd have that kind of hunger and through your word, Lord, you would fill us, complete us. In Jesus' name, amen.